like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, everyone. It's Sophia. Welcome back to Work in Progress. Today's guest is a world-class designer and one of the most creative people in business. That's actually a direct quote from Fast Company. And she happens to be a person who I have the most enormous brain crush on. So I am elated that she's here today. We are welcoming the inimitable Debbie Millman to work in progress. Debbie is a graphic designer and an educator. She's presented keynote lectures from Princeton University to the Hong Kong Design Association to Barcelona's Festival of Art and Design. She's also a powerful voice in the podcasting community. Her show, Design Matters, dates back to almost the birth of the medium and has maintained a strong following for almost 16 years. Apple Podcasts has even designated Design Matters as one of the best overall podcasts ever. As an activist, Debbie has contributed to a variety of organizations dedicated to the eradication of sexual assault and domestic violence, and she's even taken a more hands-on role as part of Mariska Hargitay's Joyful Heart Foundation. Most recently, Debbie has authored a brand new book called Why Design Matters. The book features transcripts of some of Debbie's best interviews from Design Matters, quotes from her expert guests, beautiful photography, and of course, stunning design. We'll get more details about the book, as well as Debbie's career and her passion for causes in this episode. I hope you enjoy. Well, hi. I'm just, I'm so thrilled to have you on the show today, Debbie. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, my absolute pleasure, Sophia. It is so exciting to meet you and to be here with you. I'm such an enormous fan of yours, of your writing and your speaking and your work and your podcast and and the way that you help so many people 
really consider and understand design. Thank you. Thank you very much. And I'm I'm so excited to talk to you about it because I I think about how design affects everything. Uh from how spaces feel to how our cities work and sometimes don't. Uh, I, I think about the design required to tackle things like the current issue of America's crumbling infrastructure and how it needs to be rebuilt and bolstered. I, I mean, it's design is uh, energetic and political and motivating and filled with art and capable in and of itself. And I'm just Oh, I'm so excited to ask you all about how you got into it and 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 became this expert. But before I um I completely start to blush about my thrill in this moment, I, I need to actually go backwards before we we tackle the present. I I love to see how the people who join me on the show got to where they are today. So if if you'll take a ride with me, I'd, I'd love to go back to the beginning. I'd love to know, you know, where home was for you as a kid. What what was your life like uh, pre, pre-double digits, you know, when, when you were little? Well, I'm a native New Yorker, one of the few. I was born in Brooklyn, moved to Howard Beach, Queens when I was two, lived there till the middle of third grade, um, and then moved to Staten Island. So I've lived in all the boroughs except the Bronx. Um, Lived on Staten Island for about two and a half years. Then my parents got divorced. My mom got married within a year, remarried, and she and her new husband and his two kids and me and my brother all moved to Long Island. And I lived on Long Island until I graduated high school and then went to SUNY Albany um, in the capital of New York for college. But growing up, it was was really, I, I call my childhood and adolescence the the black years because they were so challenging. Mm. My parents' divorce was was really ugly. My mom's second marriage was really abusive and mm. violent and terrifying in many, many, many ways. I know we share a mutual friend, Mariska Hargate, and mm. so I often talk about how my early life was like an episode of SVU. <laughs> so wow. um and which is why I, I now work with Mariska um at the Joyful Heart Foundation. But went off to college, started to make a life of my own, discovered design, and have had over the years a, a really interesting and evolving career sort of trying to make my early childhood dreams come home as as, you know, an, an adult. Were you thinking about design as a kid? It's it's so interesting to me that, you know, you talk about that period of difficulty and I imagine trauma and, and you assign a color to it. Which yes. is, is such a yeah. 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 I haven't really thought of it that way, but yes, when, absolutely. When I think of someone quite literally designing something, you know, um, I guess what comes to mind for me perhaps because of what I do is, you know, a movie poster or a billboard and to say that this this story, you know, this moment in this person's life is black. That strikes me as beautiful and poignant. And um, and I wonder, when you look back on it, do you see that budding passion for design then? Was it, was it present? Was it perhaps 
you know, a way to escape and imagine? Oh, for sure. I don't know that I would have put a label on it. I know, looking back, I love to make things. And I was Mm. always making things. I was making perfume out of rose petals and baby oil and talcum powder, which just resulted in a sort of pink, gluey mess. I made a magazine with one of my childhood friends who's also was named Debbie, and we we came up with a great name for a magazine. I still think it's a great name, Debutante, you know, both Debbies. Oh, okay. I was always making plays with um, assigning parts to my brother and my stepsisters and doing whatever I could mm. to really make my imagination come to life. And now I can say that I'm truly happiest when I'm making something, especially when I'm making something from nothing, you know, when Mm -hmm. there's no preconceived rules, when you don't have to follow any directions and you can just sort of improvise and make it up as you go along. And it could be a podcast, it could be a class uh, syllabus, it could be a presentation, it could be Mm. a piece of art. You know, for me, it's just the act of making that makes me happiest. I love that. And you refer to, you know, your brother and your stepsisters for all of you as kids. I I imagine your circumstances were were tough for everyone. Were you able to create kind of a team and and be each other's support system in that environment? Yes and no to a degree. My brother and I were very close at that point. Mm. Our stepfather, my stepfather, their biological father, sort of played us against each other in, in a lot of ways. Mm. And and they were married for only four years. So that's wow. probably a blessing, you know, in disguise in some ways. Um, so from the time I was, they met when I was in fifth grade and got divorced when I was, I think, in ninth. And then for lots and lots and lots and lots of reasons, never saw them again, never heard from them again. Mm. And then in 2015, um, one of my stepsisters wrote me on Facebook with an incredible, I mean, I can't really say it's incredible because of the content, but it was incredible because of the way I perceived the content, which was she wrote me and all all she wrote was, is it you? And... I wrote back, yes. And then she wrote back. And then we started talking. And I've talked on the telephone a few times. And it's sort of interesting when you think about your life. A lot of times I think people question their memories. They question their experiences. Was that exactly how it happened? Sometimes I'll watch something that I haven't seen in 20, 30, 40 years and I'll think, oh, I remembered that differently. Or even that great, great Harold Pinter play, Betrayal, where they're each remembering, the two characters are each remembering the exact same situation in a very different way. One thought it was in their their kitchen, the other thought it was in their kitchen, and they're fighting about whose kitchen it was in. And it was remarkable to talk to this person, this this stepsister that I had 45 years ago and have so many of the same memories. You know, it's such Mm. an incredible thing to be witnessed in the same way you remember living Mm. and sharing that I think was really healing for both of us. I can imagine. Especially as you said, you know, such a sort of seminal time in the development of young women, you know, fifth to ninth grade. That's, yeah, that's, I just think about how impressionable you are and, and how much imprinting happens and, and it, 
it's no surprise to me that that you guys have that kind of tether. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a good word for it. Tether is a good word. And how special that you found making and creating, you know, globby messes as it sometimes <laughs> results in, but that you, that you found this outlet to investigate and explore. Um, I imagine that that was just so incredibly motivating and, and gave you your own world. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I even made a piece of art from my stepsister's first question to me, is it you? Um, I was commissioned to do something for American Poets Magazine. and I was commissioned to do a piece of art for their cover and decided to use that phrase, is it you? And, you know, it can mean so many things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I was just so, my heart sort of burst a little bit when, when I saw it printed. Mm. Mm. Yeah, that... That's the kind of thing that really cuts to the core of something. I, you know, there's that famous saddest story ever written in six words. Oh, Ernest Hemingway. Hemingway, um, yes. Yeah, baby, baby shoes, shoes for sale, never worn. Never, never worn. Yeah. Oh, and that that is such a. It's like a lightning rod. And is it yeah. you? I think will at least for me it feels like a lightning rod kind of. Oh, thank small you. Small <laughs> sentence to read to me. Three words. Yes. Woo. <laughs> like it, it. It makes my chest flutter a bit. To be in this position now, as a maker and an artist and a, a a teacher and a leader, do you look back at that time? Especially, you know, you spoke about entering into the ninth grade. I think about. Um, those four years of high school and what they mean to so many of us who are trying to find ourselves. Do you, do you see now looking back at that time, your decision to pursue design or, or perhaps even the, you know, the teachers or professors who, who were inspiring you to find the beginning of that path? Not really until much later. Mm. Um, I, I graduated high school really quite unsure about what I wanted to do. My sole decision for choosing the college that I did was because my best friend was going. <laughs> and we decided we were going to try to be roommates. And, um, and that was a, a nice safety net for me. Mm-hmm. And I had a very limited range of schools that I could choose from because they had to be state schools because of what I could afford. But it turned out to be one of the best decisions I ever made because I really did begin to find some of my, I guess, my creative ambition and mm-hmm. some professional hopes and dreams that all began when I started working at the college newspaper. And I became the arts and features editor in my senior year of college. And as a requirement of the editor, you also had to, what was then called, put the paper together, which Mm. was designing it. And so I learned very quickly how to do basic layout and paste up, but fell madly in love with doing it. So much so that I think it's sometimes... um, I spent more time designing than I did editing. 
And then when I graduated, it really became an opportunity for me to use the only marketable skills I had, which were basic layout and paste up, and then immediately moved to Manhattan, lived in a four-story tenement walk-up, and started pounding the pavement, because that's what you did back then mm-hmm. in the in the early 80s. You know, you looked in the New York Times and went and tried to find jobs, sort of going almost door-to-door, and, and found my first job through a one ad in the New York Times. And where did you land? What was that first job? I landed at, I landed at a cable magazine. So back in the 80s, the early 80s, cable was all the rage. Suddenly you had more than just the 13 channels. And there was a whole magazine about, you know, the same, same way there was TV Guide, there was mm-hmm. Cable View. And, and that's where I worked. And I was a traffic girl between the design department and the editorial department, rose through the ranks and became an editor, which is not in any way impressive. There were like nine of us. And really spent that first year in Manhattan enthralled with what it meant to be living in Manhattan and working as a designer. At the time, I knew that I wasn't pursuing the fine art that I wanted to. I wasn't pursuing writing as a career or Mm. art as a career. I was pursuing something commercial. But at the time, the lead gene for me, Sophia, was really Mm self-sufficiency. I wanted to be safe. I wanted to be able to take care of myself. I wanted to be able to be completely independent, didn't want to have to rely on anyone. So in as much as I did have more creative aspirations than commercial, I was also very financially oriented because I wanted to be able to live on my... I mean, I had roommates, so when I say on my own, just away from the family and be able to pay my rent and you know, buy some pretty clothes every now and then. Mm-hmm. Design again. Yes. <laughs> what, what? Looking back, what designs or, or perhaps even designers would you say influenced you most when you were getting started, when, when you were, as you said, you know, pounding the pavement and going to your first job? Do, do you recall what you looked up to? Oh, absolutely. I started working in 1983, but really had a very, very limited purview of design. Mm -hmm. I was aware of the power of design, but not really the discipline so much. And it really wasn't until five or six years later that I became aware of what was happening around me because simultaneously to my evolution as a designer, the New York School of Design was first gaining real prominence with people like Tibor Kelman, um, Emily Oberman, uh, Stephen Doyle and Bill Drentel of Drentel Doyle, the folks at Manhattan Design, Double Space, Frank Rickips Ballkind. The design that was coming out of New York at that time mm-hmm. really changed the game. It really changed 20th century design. And suddenly I looked around me and realized just how little I knew, how much better everyone was at this than I was, and decided at that point at about 30 years old to stop what I was doing at that point and try to learn how to become a better designer and a better sort of critical thinker, and kind of started over at 30. One of my first sort of re—one of my first pivots into a sort of different way of living. I love that. I also love a, the acknowledgement of a start over at a, at a new decade. Yeah. Because I think so many people, especially, you know, any young people who are listening, think they're supposed to have it all figured out. They're supposed to make a decision in college, choose a job, you know. And— 
And I think it's so delicious to constantly reinvent yourself. I, yes. I, I almost think of it less as a reinvention and more as a permission slip to explore what you learn you're interested in as you yes. live. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I find it so heartbreaking for young people to feel that they have to know. I mm-hmm. teach, under, I, in addition to running my graduate program, I teach an undergraduate class every semester. Mm-hmm. And I kind of do that for very selfish reasons. I really want to know what the pulses of young people mm-hmm. and hear what they're thinking about and obsessed with and so forth. But I do an exercise with them where they really think about what their lives could be in the future. Mm-hmm. And it's heartbreaking to realize how many people in their very early 20s are already beginning to edit what's possible for them before they even consider whether it's even really possible. They Mm. just assume that they can't because someone else could do it better. And there's so much comparison and so much fear of not being able to make it or not being able to make it big or, and what does it mean, you know, to make it big? And they're all so consumed by not embarrassing themselves or their parents or Mm. looking foolish. And I'm like, if you can't look foolish when you're 25, when can you? Mm -hmm. And it's astonishing to see, you mentioned the word before, that imprint Mm. already being so solidified that it's almost like having to reorient a neural pathway in their brains to get them to consider possibilities that they've already, at 21, determined wasn't possible for them. And mostly I I feel like it's important to do that because I feel like that would have been so wonderful for me to experience at that time, and I didn't really have that. So it's, it's something that I'm really committed to doing. Oh, I love that. I think about it, uh, you know, pondering why the pressure feels so intense. And I wonder if it's because all of these tools of design that we now have at our fingertips allow us to see so much success that we've recalibrated our expectation and we think that the success that people share on their highlight reel is their day-to-day experience. We don't actually see the work that goes into right. the success and the failure and the rejection. We just see everybody nailing it all the time, and we wonder why we're not nailing it. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. You know, if you look back to pre-Facebook, when you look back to even a time like MySpace, mm. you know, I remember when MySpace came out, my goddaughter, who was in high school at the time, asked me why I thought it was so popular. And she was asking me specifically because of my work in branding and because of how much time I've spent positioning and repositioning and redesigning really big brands. And I didn't know at the time. I had no idea. And I was sort of ashamed about not knowing because here was this thing at the time that had recently surpassed Google in the number of page views that it was getting every day. And it took me many years to figure it out. And by the time I figured it out, MySpace was no longer the most popular brand in the world. But at the time, Facebook was. So it still kind of made sense. And, you know, if you think about the time before 2005, before Facebook launched in 2005-2006, the iPod had come out, and the the thread that was running through our culture was how we 
we're now living in so, in isolation. We were living in, the New York Times called it social anime because of the bubbles we were living in in our iPods where we were suddenly in control of all of our entertainment and we were turning into a generation of loners. Well, if our basic human instinct is to connect with each other, what does that do? It sort of flies in the face of everything that we have imprinted in us. Mm -hmm. And so it's not surprising then that when we were able to connect through the device suddenly, that this site became the most popular site in the world and then transferred its power to the newer, better, sexier, funnier social sites. Mm. Um, you know, we're not really addicted to those sites. We're addicted to the feeling we get being connected to people. Yeah. But then the the insidious part is what happens next. You know, that instinct to connect is there. But so is our instinct to be the fittest, you know, the survival of the fittest. And mm. so what do we do? We compare. Mm. We compare. And it's a real dilemma. It's a challenge because Generation Z is now nicknamed Generation D, D for depressed, because mm-hmm. they are constantly comparing and feeling bad about who they are in relation to others. I mean, I joke now, who comes away from Instagram after 30 minutes scrolling ever feeling good about themselves? Who? Yeah. No one. You know, Beyonce? You know, <laughs> J-Lo? You know? <laughs> And who knows if they're even really on it and it's them posting. You know, I, I I don't know that what we're seeing is ever really helpful anymore mm-hmm. because it just mostly, I mean, we cheer for people when they have babies or get married. But for those of us that are struggling with a bad day, having just had a fight with our friends, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, it, it makes you feel really small and lonely and i and i worry about what that means for the people that are being formed on it you know mm-hmm. for people that are older we we still have that early imprint that we can hold on to yeah. but and think about how hard it is for us yes <laughs> yes so what about yes. the young people who've never lived without it it's actually yeah. so interesting you know you talked about the the feeling of feeling lonely the feeling of feeling depressed and I won't say like you, because I don't know that there's anyone's brain like you, but similarly to you, I see things very visually. Even when I think about something, I get an image, um, probably because I you know, grew up working for my dad, who was a photographer for his whole working career, and you know, I make moving pictures for my career. And the, the image that came to mind for me was that sad, sad, classic photograph we've all seen of a person just sitting alone at a slot machine in Las Vegas looking depressed, but they can't stop pulling the lever. And it comes to mind because I I actually read a book called How to Break Up with Your Phone. And it talks about, it's a very small book. everything. (laughs) You've got to read it. The irony, I'm going to fully be vulnerable with you and all of our listeners today. Uh, I stopped about halfway through the book. I was like, woo, I am not ready for this. This is a lot of information. Um, And so now it just sits on my nightstand taunting me to finish it because I know that when I finish it, I have to break up with my phone. And that feels daunting. But it helped me recalibrate even my relationship to it because it taught me something about design. And it's that the designers of smartphones used the same studies that were done to design slot machines. Yes. They're designed to be 
addictive and repetitive and to make you think that just the next time you touch that screen, the next time you pull that lever, the next time you thumb scroll down, you're going to win something. Yes. And, and you never do. <laughs> it's it's really astonishing mm-hmm. how well they mimic that. Yeah. And, you know, I've thought a lot about slot machines over the years and mm. why people are so addicted to them and why they sit there and just sort of press and press and press. And there's that moment before the numbers or the symbols hit where you have hope, mm. where you think everything can change this in, might in be a millisecond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and that is so, as you said before, delicious, that mm. idea that suddenly all your problems could be gone if you win the jackpot, you yeah. know? And... I think that the same thing happens. It's not so much that everything will be different in an instant with your phone, but the constant somebody wants me, needs me, likes me, follows me, mm. is interested in me, is contacting me. You know, it's that dopamine hit that can never, ever be long-lasting. That's mm. just not the nature of dopamine. <laughs> right. And, and, and that sort of sense of that charge that we get, that hit that we get. So I'm fascinated by this. We're looking at this sort of sliver in time. You know, we're talking about smartphones, iPhones, Instagram. Um, You mentioned Facebook coming out around 2005, 2006, MySpace before that. And, And what led us down this road was you talking about this incredible boom in design from getting that first uh, cable magazine job in 1983 and what happened from that year leading up to this permission slip you wrote yourself at 30. And you said something that I find so interesting, that you were aware of design but not the discipline of it. And getting into the discipline and the expertise um, and, and the boom happening at a time when, as you said, you know, the internet was coming, Google was coming, the, the access was being born, the great side of tech. Can you tell us a little bit about first what, what it means to be aware of it versus the discipline of it? And then, I, then I'm curious about how technology enabled all of us to understand design better as a sort of second part. No, no, no big deal. <laughs> Well, you kind of have to go back to the beginning of our modern history as a species because we started creating intentional marks to Mm. record our reality. Mm. And that is something that we still do today. If we go back about 18,000 years ago, and now archaeologists are finding that it's far, 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 far further back in time. But the caves of Lascaux, where we found the markings of humans that were recording their history. They were drawing the animals that they were killing. They were Mm. um, drawing each other. We have been marking our reality since the beginning of our modern history. And however that is imprinted in us, whatever that part of our brain is that fundamentally needs to connect with others and share is exactly the same now. We went from that to uh, beginning to record our relationship to what we believed was a higher power. Mm. Every, every tribe of religious people 
from 10,000 years ago till now has used symbols to signify their beliefs and affiliations. Mm. No matter where they were on the planet, they all created symbols. They all created places to worship together. They all created very specific rituals. Many of those rituals were identical despite different religious beliefs, how women cover their hair, what we can and can't eat, how we prepare our food, marriage, the signification of marriage with wedding bands or other marks to indicate being committed to someone else, we behave as a species very, very similarly, regardless of our gender, our orientation, our race, our class. Mm. These are all the foundations of our relationship with design because it was a decision that we made to create a mark that through sharing created consensus And that consensus is what allows us to all keep track of reality because we believe something very similar about this specific thing. Our earliest earliest fights as a species were because we were fighting either over land or God. Mm. (laughs) Whose beliefs are right? Whose land does this belong to? Most of our early uh, wars were religious in nature. And we created flags on the battlefield to signify what side we were on because essentially people look the same. And so there was no way to tell friend from foe. And then that turned into crests and shields and that turned into brand logos and the Nike swoosh and everything else. It's it's really quite an astonishing, consistent way of behaving that has changed very little in the last 10,000 years. That's so cool. I read an article just this summer about uh, a group of archaeologists studying cave paintings, old old carvings in caves. And they were theorizing that perhaps the, the imagery that they were seeing that then had these strange sort of vertical lines carved through them, they thought, oh, were, were people trying to essentially paint over the canvas so they could, you know, do something new and then realized, oh, this isn't working in the rock. And it took them some time. And what they finally realized was they were in these caves with, you know, giant flashlights, torches, analyzing. And that in history, man didn't have that. And so they brought fire in and realized that as you moved through the cave in the in the actual light of a campfire, a, a burning torch, that these strange squiggly lines, as you went from one side of an image, you know, a few feet over to the other, made the images look like they were moving. Oh, God, that's so great. And these scientists, I mean, I have goosebumps thinking about it. Yeah. They wrote about how this was the first movie, that these cave carvings were done in a manner that in firelight looked like they were moving the animals, the grass, the people. And I I just thought, to your point, we've always tried to preserve this, you know, our memories, our, our experiences. And, and I, I suppose it's why I love to lean into experts like you, minds like yours, um, you know, shows like Abstract on Netflix. Mm. Oh. I mean, from typography to lighting design, uh, I just, I love seeing the inside of, of 
so many of these people's minds. And I, I wonder if for you loving the, the sort of history and, and the totality and the possibility all wrapped up in design, is that what motivated you to, to start Design Matters, to interview other designers, to, you know, to launch? I mean, you launched a podcast 16 years ago. Talk about being the tip <laughs> of the spear um, in what arguably is a, was at that time a, a new design model of communication and exploration. I mean, what, what made you decide to start that? And how in the world did you pick a podcast then? Well... It's a, it was an interesting time in my life. I, I talked a little bit about how, you know, those black years turned into that that first, I would say, 13 or so years of my career, I, I called, I call them experiments in rejection and failure <laughs> because they were just, Same. <laughs> I just kept trying from thing to thing to thing to uh-huh. thing and finally fell into branding quite by accident. And then really? in 1995, yeah, I went from design into branding. And it's a natural evolution and a lot of people do it now. But at the time, I had no idea what I was doing. It was, I needed a job. I had sort of failed as a designer. I'd sort of failed as a project manager at the time, and somebody was offering me a job as a salesperson, and I needed to pay my mortgage and took the job and ended up being quite by accident, very, very good at it, and then rose back up through the ranks over those years. But when I got to Sterling Brands in 1995, I first experienced my professional success. That was like the first time in my life I was ever really acknowledged as good at something. And so for the first eight years of doing it, that's all I wanted to do. You, know, you get that first taste of feeling good about yourself. It's like, I want more. I want more. Mm. More dopamine, more dopamine, more dopamine. And so I gave up all of my sort of creative pursuits, which had kind of gone nowhere. Um, I stopped writing. I stopped drawing. I put my guitar mm. into the bed. I even stopped doing textile work and needlepoint and things that I had been doing just for fun and just worked 24-7. And it was, you know, in looking back on it, I'm glad I did it. It got me an opportunity to sell a very successful company and and do really well for myself at the time. But after about eight years, I started to feel like, hmm, you know, everything I'm doing is so commercial and it's all about return on investment, market share position, shareholders, consumers. I'm losing my creative soul. I actually thought it might be dead or certainly dying. Mm. And then one day I got a cold call from a internet, a fledgling internet radio network who had seen something that I had written about election graphics that had gone a little bit viral. And, And this was in 2004, and it was um, a piece that I'd written about purple states as opposed to red or blue. And I wrote it with a dear friend of mine, Mark Kingsley, on the first ever design blog called Speak Up. And they called me. I thought they were offering me a job, Sophia. I was like, are you offering me a job as like a talk show host? Mm. And like, you know, my my eyes had like the money sign, like Bugs Bunny, like just rolling around. And I was like, oh, my God. They weren't. <laughs> they were offering me an opportunity to pay them to create a vanity show on their radio network. Oh, and. And that was very typical at the time, and it might still be. 
I was, it was a real Hail Mary. I was like, this is kind of creative and maybe I can interview my clients and I can kind of have it be a little bit about branding, which is what they wanted, but I can really, it can go in as a Trojan horse. I'll say it's about branding, but it'll really be about design. Mm. And, and that's, and that's sort of what I did. I paid them $5,000 to produce 13 episodes and in February of 2005, my my little radio, live radio show launched. At the time, Sterling Brands was located in the Empire State Building, so I could very legitimately say broadcasting live from the Empire State Building. And, and that was it. It was on one time live during the week on Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern, and then rerun, you know, the wee hours of the morning during the week. And one of the one of the co-founders of Speak Up, Ryan Gomez Palacio, said to me, "You know, it's really inconvenient <laughs> to just have the show on one time a week that we can listen to. Why don't you take the digital file and upload it to Apple? Upload it to iTunes, like an indie musician. There was no podcast section at that point. Whoa." And I thought, "Oh, what a great idea! That's a great idea." And so that's what I started to do, and inadvertently became one of the first and longest-running podcasts, but it wasn't intended in any way to be a— I wasn't intending for it to be, you know, a pioneering thing. And the sound at the time was— Utterly unlistenable. It was. Uh, we were. I was doing interviews, Sophia, with people, and I was sitting across from them in the Empire State Building. They'd come to my office, um, and we'd each have a handset, a, a landline telephone handset that was then put through a modem and sent to my producers in Arizona. And I swear, my producers could have been stand-ins for Wayne and Garth in Wayne's World. Um, and you know, there were times where I felt like, "Hey, guys, are you, are you there? Are you are you like smoking a bong or something?" You know, it was so. <laughs> It was so bootstrap <laughs> and amazing. bad, and but I really fell in love with it, and I did 100 episodes on Voice America, uh, and then in, in 2009, the late, great Bill Drentel, one of my heroes from my earlier career attempts, approached me and asked me if I would be interested in bringing it to his blog, which was also another one of the first design blogs, Design Observer, and but with the proviso that I improved the sound quality. It's wow. like you, you have to get a real producer. You have to be able to do this professionally and not some, you know, claptrap little bootstrap radio <laughs> rinky-dink, you know, can with a string on it kind of thing. And I didn't have any access to producers or didn't know anybody. And so he introduced me to Curtis Fox, who was then doing the New Yorkers podcast. And Curtis became my producer. He's been my producer ever since. So it's 12 years. And um, I was on Design Observer exclusively for a really long time. Two years ago, I started to be now part of the TED Audio Collective so after my TED Talk, I was invited to participate in the TED Audio Collective. So now the show is distributed through TED. And mm. it's just grown very organically over, you know, it's nearly 17 years now. And it became one of the sort of unexpected gifts of a lifetime. That is so cool. When you look back at all of these episodes that you've recorded, are are there episodes in particular that you always think about when people ask what episodes you think about, you know, things that have changed the way that you approach your creative endeavors or or the way that you think about things? Yes. And 
lots for different reasons. Mm. My first interview with Milton Glaser, who was the most sort of, the first legend I ever interviewed. I was very intimidated. Also, my my first interview with Massimo Vignelli, another legendary designer, who at the time I first was trying to reach him didn't have an email address. That's how far back this goes. And I decided to call his studio, and he answered the phone. (laughs) It was like, uh, yeah, it was totally— yeah. Can you can you tell our listeners who may not be familiar with them uh, a, a little bit Absolutely. about the people to whom you're referring? Yeah, Milton Glaser designed the I Heart New York logo. He designed that very very famous Bob Dylan poster with the streams of color coming out of his hair, mm. and he's in profile. Massimo Vignelli designed the American Airlines logo, not the current one, but the one before that, and that was in existence for, I don't know, feels like most of history. Wow. Um, so so people that really created the visual language of our time. Mm. And, and what's interesting about those two in particular, I think they're the only two, Sophia, that I interviewed that seemed sort of content with how their lives have, have unfolded. They didn't have any particular regrets. Mm. They were very proud of their legacy. They were still very engaged in their work. And I came to realize that I think it's because I interviewed them when they were both in their late 80s, when they had like no more Fs to give kind of thing. Yeah. But oh, and that's the only common denominator. Like they, everybody else that I've interviewed, and, and this is something I've really come to understand in a way that I never expected. Everybody wants more. Everybody wants a bigger life and a bigger way of being able to connect. And everybody wants to make things. Everybody wants to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And very few people, aside from Milton or Massimo, of the nearly 500 people I've interviewed now are just like, okay, as is. They just want to keep growing. They want to keep learning. They want to keep making. And I think that that's part of what being an artist or a designer or a creative person is, just this mm. constant evolution and reinvention of creativity, making things. When you think about that, it it strikes me as really a perspective on the world. And I, I am curious how you think your background, your your level of expertise in design itself affects the way that you see and interact with the world around you. Well, there's sort of the practical and then some of the ritual. Mm. <laughs> because I'm so schooled in now understanding how brands become what they are and what it takes to maintain the level of a Nike or an Apple or why things like the Tropicana debacle of 2000 and what was that? I don't remember what year it was, but the year that they redesigned and lost like 20% of their market share in six weeks. Um, You know, I'm really aware of of the inner workings of this methodology. I understand that kind of madness. So there's that. And then there's just the pure aesthetic, sometimes just admiring something for its sheer beauty or its ease of use or how it makes you feel or how you are changed through the experience of using it somehow. Mm -hmm. And then also the 
sort of behind the scenes, how did how did that happen? Mm. And and trying to re-engineer how something like that made it to market. So yeah, I can't I can't help but still do those things. When you think about that branding brain that you have, because you've you've worked in it, you see it, you know it. it you, I imagine you can't turn it off. Uh, Sometimes, much to my dismay, <laughs> yeah. I I have that I have that with my activist brain. Sometimes yeah. I just want to go to a dinner party, and the minute I hear that something's wrong somewhere, I'm like, I can't. I'm so I have to go read an article. I so I. I, I totally get, get it. Yeah, you just you can't you can't turn off um you can't turn it off after after a time I think when you when you dedicate so much of yourself to something and and I wonder when you think about brands you've worked on or perhaps you know lessons from the world of branding that might be great to share. I I know there's folks at home who are like, wait, but I want to know more about what she what she means, what she's talking about. Are are there some of those things you might be able to share with us? Absolutely. Um, there are two that come immediately to mind, and they're two of the most recognizable marks in the world and have been for a very long time. Uh, the first is the Nike swoosh, of course. Mm. Um, the Nike swoosh was created by a college student named Carolyn Davidson, and she did it overnight for Phil Knight. I think she was paid at the time. She's still made, she's since been made whole, but at the time she was paid $35. Oof. <laughs> when Phil Knight first saw, Phil Knight is the CEO of Nike. When he first saw the logo, uh, he didn't like it. He actually said, I don't love it, but, but maybe it'll grow on me. He had a deadline. He had sneaker shoe boxes to print and he needed the logo. He preferred the Adidas logo. He felt that that had more of a sort of sense of movement and so I ask people now, you know, is it the mark or is it the marketing? Would yeah. we be able to recognize that mark as solely Nikes if $100 million of advertising wasn't put behind it every year? Mm -hmm. And then I challenge people. I'm like, okay, does it look like anything else you have ever seen? And people are usually like, mm, no. Look at a box of Newport cigarettes, turn it upside down, and the Newport iconography is becomes the Nike logo when you turn it upside down. Wow. You can look at something like the Capital One logo, which is very similar to the Nike logo on sort of its side. So is it the mark or is it the marketing? Mm. And then and then I'm gonna give you another example, which is sort of mind-blowing and trigger alert because I'll be talking about um, the Holocaust for a moment and Hitler. I'll talk about the swastika. So before it was appropriated and stolen by Hitler, mm -hmm. the swastika, which comes from the Sanskrit word swastika, um, was used everywhere. It was a symbol, an ancient symbol in Sanskrit, the Sanskrit, Definition is good luck, well-being, and fortune. Oh. So wow. this mark was used in the 1920s. And I have, a, I have an actual photo of this. All of this is absolutely true. In the 1920s by Coca-Cola, they, they designed a good luck bottle opener. It was used by the Boy Scouts. It was used on poker chips, good luck poker chips, playing cards, cigar wrappers, mm. road signs. Even the Jain tribe used the swastika 
on a hand of God emblem that they created for worship. Mm-hmm. It was only when Hitler appropriated it, stole the mark. And didn't they that, reverse it too? It, it was like they it turned depends. good there, luck there's, backwards. It, it, there's so many different ways that it's been used, but Got yes, it. he did. He did turn it, but there mm-hmm. are lots of other places where it's not. It's it's in history where it was in one direction or in, or the other. Or the other, I see. Yeah, it was it was used quite similarly mm-hmm. in either direction, and we don't necessarily know if it was intentional that the direction was what it was historically. Mm-hmm. But he stole that emblem. And has and created a situation where it is now what Stephen Heller, the historian, says is a mark beyond redemption. Yes. You know, it could never be rehabilitated. No, <laughs> but but it, it did start out very much as something else. Mm-hmm. You know, it was created it for for eons. Yeah. You know, it was there was consensus around this mark, meaning good luck and good fortune. And then through uh, the use as a Nazi symbol, became turned into something completely different. And now there's consensus around that, and that's what we associate that mark with. Wow. So it's it's quite intriguing to look at things like the hand of God, things like the swastika, things like Nike, the Nike swoosh, any any religious symbol. You know, they're all created in mm-hmm. very similar manners, and they all need consensus to be sort of to be amplified through culture. Mm-hmm. And they need to be widely shared in order to achieve that. So there needs to be a sense of affiliation with those marks that then engage you into that tribe, so to Mm. speak. Yeah. And when you think about iconography that exists in so many places, you know, the the famed image of the flaming heart, um, Mm -hmm. it is really interesting how so many versions of us in so many places have come to the same symbology. Absolutely. If you look at the origination of our religious symbols, Mm -hmm. these were happening all over the world. Simultaneously. Simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And we we weren't traveling by steam steam roller. We weren't traveling by high-speed trains. We we had no way of Mm -hmm. being able to know what people around the globe were doing. And they were happening all at the same time. Yeah. I I think a lot about uh, Liz Gilbert's book, Big Magic, that Mm -hmm. talks about uh, wild instances of that, including a story of hers that she started working on a book. And and the particulars of the book, I mean, a character who was going in a certain era to to a certain part of the Amazon with a very specific name, and then she put the book away. She had things happening in her life. And, you know, two years later, she runs into another writer at a conference who says, you know, I've just started working on this book, and it's the same book. Right, right. And they were both just floored. And she said, you know, ideas that want to be born, they're gonna they're gonna pop into multiple brains to get out. And Absolutely. I, I think I think about that in terms of the sorts of things you're referring to, the you know, coincidental timelines. And it feels the coincidental yeah. I mean sparkly. it's sort of a confluence though. Yeah, it's a confluence though. It mm. feels like it's both magic like that. And then also something very deliberate and intentional. And it reminds me a little bit of that scene in The Devil Wears Prada where Miranda Priestly is talking about cerulean blue and that lumpy sweater mm. 
that um, Anne Hathaway's character was wearing and how that was chosen for her by the very minds in that room Mm. because of their ability to market and manufacture messaging. Mm. So when you think about the ability to influence, how do you then apply that sort of power out in the world for good? You know, you mentioned earlier that you work with Mariska on No More. And I think about the symbol of that, that turquoise logo. I know the moment I think of it. And that might be because she's my friend. And it also might be because I've shared it. And it might just be because I've seen it on billboards all over the place. But I know what it is. Did you assist with that design as well? Yes, I did. Actually, Mm. I worked on it and I designed it at Sterling Brands with my friend and colleague, Christine Mao. She was then the global design director at Kimberly Clark. And there was a consortium of organizations back when we first did this that came together along with Mariska's foundation, which is Joyful Heart Foundation, to really try as as a group of organizations to eradicate sexual vi- uh, domestic violence, sexual assault, and child abuse. Mm. And we wanted a symbol. We wanted to create a mark that would be telegraphic. There was lots of reasons we chose that. That little dot in the middle of the blue circle is what we called the vanishing point. So eventually this goal of eliminating and eradicating sexual violence mm. um, and now the rape kit backlog. But that doesn't always mean it's going to be successful. Mm-hmm. You know, you do have to be able to launch something like that with a very specific, very single-minded strategy that you hope will ignite the imagination of the world. And it doesn't always happen. And the mystery here is that you never know when it's going to happen. You never know. And if anybody tells you that they do, don't believe them (laughs) because it's it's a match that gets ignited Mm. by the zeitgeist. It's not something that you can predict otherwise— Everything that was intended to go viral and be successful would, and we know how many things are failed that that are failed. You know, most mm-hmm. startups, I would say, eighty at least eighty percent of startups fail. Mm. It's so hard, you know, that idea. You've got to really hold it with an open hand. And, yeah. and I imagine for something like this, a cause that is not only so meaningful to so many people in the world, but also to you personally, given your childhood experiences. How how hard it must be to put it out there and say, I don't know if it's going to work, but I want it to work so badly. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. At the time, we never doubted it. And I don't know if it was because mm-hmm. it was so many really impassioned people. You know, it was the Joyful Heart Foundation and Avon and Verizon and Kimberly Clark. And for the first time, corporations were even talking about this. There's yeah. so There was so much socialized shame associated with this, Mm -hmm. and I know you know this too, that even talking about it made people feel bad, feel icky, feel Mm -hmm. damaged, feel shameful. Victims never wanted to disclose because they felt that somehow it was something bad about them as opposed to the perpetrator. And so for the first time, we started talking about these things, and it was really right before Me Too. 
And there was this groundswell of people that were just coming forward and sharing. And I mean sharing personally, but also sharing the information with the world. So it was almost like this devastatingly thirsty planet that needed to come together to start to protest this. Because if you think back before that, Mm -hmm. people weren't talking about it at all. Mm-hmm. And now they are. And so at the time, and I, I was actually feeling a lot of my own shame. I, I hadn't really disclosed to anybody other than really close friends and my family. Mm-hmm. I felt very damaged by it. I felt very less than because of it. Mm-hmm. But going back to, you know, one of the questions that you asked about guests, certainly one of the pivotal moments in my growth and simultaneously the evolution of the, of the podcast was my interview was this collective interviews Tim Ferriss and I have done on each other's podcasts and the subsequent conversations that we've had about early childhood abuse and what that does to a person and mm. his journey has been very different than mine but they co- they sort of coincide in lots of points and so having those conversations have fundamentally changed my life. Mm. Mostly because the shame is gone. And wow. and that's, you know, I'm going to be 60 very soon. So that only happened in the last couple of years. And so it's been a real journey to get to that place when you carry that giant bag for so long yeah. and then and then let it and then let it drop. That that certainly has been a, a big moment for me mm. through the podcast. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have met Tim otherwise. That's so incredible. And what an amazing moment when you whatever does it finally, when you finally get to put the backpack down and you realize how heavy it's been the whole time. Right? Right? Oh. Yeah. Is there something that, you know, thinking about that, that that weight of shame which is so deeply misplaced onto victims and survivors rather than perpetrators. We're, we're in this moment, it feels, you know, a zeitgeist moment in culture where we're really beginning to, as you said, talk about these things, acknowledge them, eradicate the shame, educate people about the circumstances. Is, is there something that you wish more people understood about domestic abuse? That it's never the victim's choice. Mm-hmm. And if they're still staying, it's because they have no other choice. That's certainly how I feel about the about domestic violence. Mm. When it comes to child abuse, the fundamental fabric of a child's psyche is obliterated when they're trespassed in that way. And they don't then have any resources that they could depend on. It's not just the abuse, it's the conditions that led to the abuse, especially Mm -hmm. systemic abuse, where people that are being abused are too afraid to say something because they've been told that they'll be killed or their mother will be killed or their brother will be killed Mm -hmm. or they'll be uh, killed, (laughs) you know. Um, There's, there's, it's never, ever the um, victim's fault, ever. There's nothing that anybody could ever say that would make this the victim's fault. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter what they were wearing or what they weren't wearing, what they were saying, what they were doing. If somebody trespasses another person's body, then the trespasser is always at fault. Mm -hmm. And and that's something people don't always understand. You know, it's, it's really a lot of the work that you've done 
in in the work that you've done as an actor and as an activist, the work that Marishka's done, that's really mainstreamed it. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way. I mean that your audiences have been so big and so um, desirous of this content, mm-hmm. this these stories, um, this evidence that they are not to blame that has changed the culture of our time. Yes. Yeah, I think it's an incredible privilege to tell and to fight to tell stories like these. Yeah. Because what they've done is they've modeled reality for people. And once you see it, you can't continue to believe, oh, that person must have said something. Oh, it must have been, you know, it, it, it takes two to tango, all that sort of nonsense that that just really excises the reality of you know, abuse or violence or harassment that people go through. And to be able to tell real stories, um, you know, these are people's real stories that we're often representing. It's It's been an incredible privilege to help, um, you know, tear the mask off and, yeah. and get real about it. And oddly, it, it always circles back to design. There is a design mm-hmm. to creating a world to tell that story. You have to design a container. You have to create space for survivors to come and tell their stories to writers and then for writers to change just enough of the details that we can protect the survivors who've spoken to us. You know, it's, it is to me an act of love and resistance and, and a very tender and considerate design. Yeah. Absolutely. I've often been asked, because even before my work with Mariska, I really loved the television show and watched it on repeat. And mm-hmm. and Me too. Even before meeting my wife, Roxanne Gay, and, and finding out that she also watched those shows, we've both been asked why we like these shows so much. Mm-hmm. You know, if we've both been through the things that we've been through. Um, she's also a huge fan of yours, by the way, and we only will watch the reruns of of PD that you're in. Oh, you're so <laughs> sweet. The, I, the show changed so much after you left. But. I have to say, I just love Roxanne so much. And every time, you know, she responds to something I say online, I'm like, oh, God, it's a good day. So, the, you, yeah, you know, the two so of you together. Jealous. Oh, she oh. was so jealous that I was on the show. So I'm going to introduce you guys. Oh, please. She, wants, I, she so wants to come on. I just, I also just so want to come over and hang. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but the thing that we we both acknowledged when we were first first getting to know each other is like, oh, do people ever ask you why you like these shows so much? Because mm-hmm. they do the same with me too. Yeah. Why would you want to keep reliving, you know, the horrors of humanity? And it's like, no, no, no. Mm-hmm. We're watching justice. We're watching mm-hmm. justice in action. We're watching a different outcome yeah. than what we had. Yeah. And it makes us feel safer. Yeah. Because it gives you the possibility of saving, of someone being saved, of someone being helped in the way that you or I or she or anyone listening has felt let down by a system that didn't show up for us to watch someone show up and to watch someone fight for a person being harmed. It's, it's incredible. And what a, what a whirlwind that was for me to be Working with her, you know, a hero of mine and and a woman who I call a friend, you know, now to have been given the privilege of her friendship through a job, to be working on a job that I'd said I'd always wanted to do because of the stories she was telling. And um, 
to be, uh, you know, behind closed doors, not, not ever on her set. Obviously she runs one of the best sets I've ever been on because she is who she is, but you know, on my set to be going through abuse. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it was, a and that very, breaks our heart. Mm, totally. Well, it was just a heart. very confusing thing. Um, because I thought, you know, this is my shot to represent the help, but I, I don't have help here. What's happening? <laughs> and, you know, ironically, because people will ask me, oh, you, you know, you must just not watch any of that anymore. I'm like, well, I, I, I barely watch shows I'm on because when you're making a show, you don't have time to watch a show because you're always on set. But, you know, I, I think about the fact that for whatever reason, her show as it seems to be for you and for Roxanne, still feels like such a safe place to me. So if I turn Absolutely. on the TV and it's, you know, it's a Sunday and there's an SVU marathon, I'm like, I'm in all day. This is just going to be <laughs> on in the house all day. I'm going to do laundry and I'm going to like, you know, give the dog a bath and I'm going to do all the things I need to do. And this is just going to be on. And I I feel the same way as you. I, I, I do love it. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. It's an interesting thing that that's, you know... Um, a bond that that you and Roxanne have, and as I've I've you know just admitted to you and everyone listening, also hi Roxanne, I love you. Um, that I really <laughs> love her, and and just am so amazed with her writing and her leadership, and and I think about the way that you write and you lead. I mean, e- even the way you referenced, by the way, your conversations with Tim Ferriss, the the space that you create, not just for women like us. And, you know, not just for queer women and women of color, but but also men out there in the world who need great community. You both, in your own incredibly unique ways, which which also overlap so beautifully, you do this. How, how did you two meet? Are you just inspired all the time? What? I don't know. Part of me just thinks about how interesting your breakfast table must be. <laughs> so I'm so, I'm just so A, I'm so happy for you both. Congratulations. You. And and B, um, yeah, I just kind of want to know what, you know, two powerhouse leaders, authors, creators living under the same roof is like. Well, every day is just she is the most magnificent human to have ever walked the earth as mm. far as I'm concerned. I I pursued her, Sophia. I I like really, really pursued her. I initially wanted her to be on the podcast after I read Hunger. Um, Hunger, as you can well imagine, just devastated me, mm. both good and bad. Mm. And it was just a one of the most powerful books that I had ever read. But I also felt that she had somehow gotten a peek into my own life somehow and wrote my truths for me. Mm. And at the time, I I was very intentionally single. I was not looking for a relationship. I was trying to break some really bad habits from my past mm. and just uh, just very innocently asked her to be on the podcast. And then she said yes and then no because she was— there was a lot of scheduling issues with her PR people and whatnot. So she ended up not being on it. And I just kept writing her. You know, I, I, I then I read Bad Feminist and I'm like, oh, I love SVU too. And I love Scrabble too. And like this seemed like there was all these, these overlaps, dorky overlaps mm. that led me to believe that we were meant for each other. <laughs> I really did. I thought we are meant for each other. Oh. And, and then um, 
finally through the writer Ashley Ford, magnificent writer of a book that, that came icon. out this year, Nobody's Daughter, which is just... <sighs> Ashley and I were both doing a spoken word event together. At a, it was a design event. And afterward, we and the rest of the ensemble went out for some drinks. And we ended up going back to my apartment because they, we were, there were so many of us, it would have been unwieldy to find a place that we could all sit down. Mm. And my, my place was around the corner from the venue. And somehow we all started talking, and Ashley started talking about her mentor, Roxanne. Yeah. And somehow I just blurted it out. I said, it surprised me too. I said, oh my God, I have such a crush on her. And Ashley looked at me and was like, really? Like, sister, I can hook you up. Ooh, and okay. But, I mean, it was all in her face. She didn't say <laughs> that at all. It was like she gave me an eyebrow and a sort of— You saw it. Yeah. And I'm like, do you think I have a shot? And she's like, well, there might be a window of opportunity available. I said, would you put in a good word for me? And she said, sure. Can I? And I said, can I use your name? <laughs> So then I wrote her again and I said that I had just spent an evening with Ashley Ford mm. and just, just thought that there might be a chance. So I was wondering if I could take you out on a proper date. That's what I asked her. And and she responded, sure. Oh. <laughs> Roxanne is a woman of just, you know, she's so erudite and she's such a good writer. And I got back a sure. Which I just said, okay, you know, I'm just at her own pace. And then I wrote back and took four months to schedule, but wow. we did. And then sort of had a great first date, a great second date after she canceled and then re re-upped. And then a great third date. And we've been together ever since. <laughs> wow. Oh, I just love that. I also love witnessing. I, I wish everyone listening could see you in this moment because you're just beaming. And you look like a bubbly little girl. You, oh it's my just God. that that pure joy of a crush. And yeah. when they when they last, when you still have a crush on your partner, it's it's so nice. Yeah. Well, it's only been three years, so yeah. I guess we're still in that honeymoon phase. But I do really feel so lucky. And you know, for anybody that's listening, that's like, oh, when will I find my true love? I didn't meet Roxanne until I was fifty-seven. Mm -hmm. So, you know. It, everything takes a long time. Yeah. But it's possible. You know, it's really possible. And I never, ever, ever thought that this would happen for me. Never, never, really? never. I always had this sense of—I always had this fantasy that whoever I was with would find me kind of amusing, sort of funny— and no one else had ever felt that way. <laughs> but Roxanne really genuinely is amused and thinks, amused by me and thinks I'm funny. And like things that I would have with fights with, with other people about, she laughs at or things that she says that were big friction points. She just wrote a piece, I think, I don't remember what magazine it was. I think maybe Elle. She wrote a piece about a, a, an ex of hers thinking she was an acquired taste and that wasn't a, a compliment. Mm. And she writes about how you know, people just have different ways of relating and the very things that delight and thrill some people are the very things that outrage others. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of across the board with everything in life. Yeah. The particulars, I think, can take time, especially when you are the sort of multi-hyphenate of all the things that many of us are, you know, creatives, curious people. You're often out exploring outside of yourself 
And and when you mix in a little bit of uh, being a version of a survivor and, um, you know, carrying your childhood trauma backpack and all the things that we can have, it, it can make it really hard to to get still enough to even know what mirrors you well. Beautifully said. <laughs> yes. Thank you. I, I think about it with, you know, with my fiance and God, yeah. I on no planet did I think this person was going to be my person. If I'd like written on paper who my human is, and and yet you finally do enough of the work, and you put the backpack down, and you, and you really get still, and you take some time. I, you know, you and I are the same. I took some time. I was just was like, I'm not going to date anymore. I'm just not going to do that. Yeah. And um, because I think I needed a lesson in not settling, in not ignoring what wasn't mirroring well and um and yeah how funny it's and it's just so fun that the thing I'm recognizing in you the joy when you speak about your wife makes me so happy because I I feel that way I, I had to work on Saturday and so I was driving to this set and we had been on the phone talking about something that needed to happen at the house that day that he was going to take care of. And I called him back 10 minutes later and he goes, oh, did, um, did you forget something? And I was like, no, I just, I really love you. And also I like you so much as a person. <laughs> That's wonderful. And he was that like, is absolutely wonderful. And I just thought, I just, this is so fun. I didn't know it could be this fun. Yeah. Yeah. How did you guys meet? Oh my God. So this is the craziest thing. We met, it'll be 10 years ago this New Year's. On a big wow. trip with a group of friends in South America. It's just the most random thing. And we just were these like nerdy friends forever. We were never single at the same time. And he's such a good person. He was never one of those like single guys who'd be like, your boyfriend seems nice or whatever gross thing, you know, people do yeah. when they throw a vibe just to see. He never did that. And that's also not my vibe. <laughs> um, and so we... You know, we'd see each other. We knew each other's exes. We we would bump into each other weirdly in New York a lot. Uh, we were living on opposite sides of town. So if I had to go to, you know, a birthday party on his side of town, traffic in LA is obviously a nightmare. So we'd meet up for a coffee and sit around for two hours and talk about technology and what was happening in politics. And then I'd be like, all right, I'll see you later. Great to see you, whatever. And um, and it's just so, it's so funny, the thing that, the thing that reconnected us right at the start of the pandemic, before we even knew it was a pandemic, was working with a huge group of people trying to get um, supply chains opened from the Midwest to get warehouses of PPE to New York. And, And it was like jumping into this moment of, you know, public health advocacy and activism we were like, oh my God, this is the longest I've ever gone without seeing you. Has it been like two years? What you up to? And it it kind of, um, yeah, it just changed all of it. Wow. It's so romantic. It's so fun. It's yeah, really, it's really fun. Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, gosh, congratulations to the two of you. I like I said, the I the breakfast table conversation and the bookshelves in your apartment, I imagine, are so good. <laughs> and, and I have to say thank you for this addition to my bookshelf. This is incredible. Oh. 
Debbie. Thank you. I'm going to send you a book plate so you could have it. I'll oh, send you a little message for it's it. It's so fabulous. Everybody at home, I realize I'm I'm saying this is amazing and you can't see us. We're seeing each other. We're having like a we're having a friend giggle, but um I'm holding Debbie's new book and it's called Why Design Matters and it's conversations with the world's most creative people. It's gorgeous. It's I would say what is this measure? 10 by 10? It's 10 by 10 and it's five pounds. <laughs> it is. It's heavy. It's delicious. And it's this incredible collection of, you know, as you said earlier, some of the most fascinating and impactful conversations you've had on the podcast, you, you've you've given to us in this, I mean, not that anyone is surprised, the most beautifully designed coffee table <laughs> book. But but as you said earlier, it it really does Trojan horse empathy and thoughtfulness and uh, permission and, and a deep honesty inside of a design book. Oh, thank you so much. I'm curious, you know, you, you've written a bunch of books. So as you look at your writing life, how, what do you think sets this book apart? And why did you decide you wanted to write this one? Well, in many ways, I didn't really decide I wanted to write it. Mm. I had completed a book with three dear friends, Maria Popova, Wendy McNaughton, and Sarah Rich. We all worked mm. on creating a book about the 20th century, one of the one of the great female designers of the 20th century, really unsung. We wanted that to be changed. Her name is C.P. Pinellas. And we wrote a book. To, we all put to, worked together on a book that Sarah edited um, about CP's life, and she she was a cook, and it's recipes, and it's it's quite an unusual book. And through that experience, I met Charlotte Sheedy, who was our agent for the book through Wendy McNaughton. Mm. And Charlotte said, why haven't you done a book about your show? And mm. I said, well, because I once told a friend of mine who I really respected the idea about possibly doing it, and he thought it was a terrible idea. And he's a really good friend, and he meant it at the time. It was, you know, back when the show was like three years old and everything was for free on the internet. So he just thought, well, like, why would people pay for something like that? And I'm glad he said that, because at that time it would have been the really wrong book to make. <laughs> and Charlotte thought it would be a good idea, and she put out some feelers, and HarperCollins was really interested, and then all of a sudden I had to make a book. And it was somewhat daunting. It also happened just at the time I met Roxanne, and it was like, book, schmuck, I'm in love. (laughs) (laughs) So then I had to get a year year extension on my deadline. Nobody was happy about that except Roxanne. (laughs) But then I ended up doing this during, during, mostly during COVID. So that's, that it was an accidental book in many ways, but I feel Mm. that it's a good moment in time to sort of be a monograph of the show, of Mm -hmm. of some of the the, those best moments. Um, It was very hard to edit because I had a limited amount of space and a lot of people that I wanted to include. So I know it's a dense book. It's 150,000 words, believe it or not. (laughs) That's why it's five pounds. (laughs) I love it. And I love that the, you know, the conversations, it it almost feels like a collection of essays. So it's the kind of book you can do a little bit at a time. I'm glad that you said that because that's also why we designed it in the way that we did. Mm-hmm. Alex Kalman, who is Tibor Kalman's son, you know, one of my early heroes. So there's that 
phenomenal symmetry to this story. Wow. Um, Alex Kalman designed the book for me, and initially I was a little bit surprised at his approach to his use of typography and the, and the variety that he was using and the way he was using that range of, of faces. But I think it makes a lot of sense because it gives you permission to put it down because suddenly there's a pause. Yes. And, it, and it's sort of like a different, like a different scene in a play. Mm-hmm. And you can have a natural pause to stop and then we pick it up. So I think he was really, really smart in the way that he did that. Yes. Yeah, it, it, it's almost like, you know, a TV series. You do it an episode at a time. Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's really profound. <laughs> I really, I, well, I'm clearly a, a major fan, not only of you, but of this book. I think it's so beautiful. Even, you know, since it's arrived here at my house, the the moments I find myself sitting with it, whether it's, you know, the day it came and I, I read through it for 45 minutes or, you know, yesterday morning, I was like, I'm going to skip ahead. I want to read the Esther Perel conversation. And I just read that. And, you know, I took a few minutes in the morning and it was a really um, just inspiring little moment. Uh, Esther is, you know, uh, an icon to me and I pinch myself, also a friend. And so I thought, I wonder what they talked about. (laughs) (laughs) She is, you know, she she can talk about anything. anything. And every conversation I have with her, I come away from it thinking... What a freaking queen what a she is. And right? her vocabulary just, Ugh. oh God, it's so gorgeous. <laughs> yeah. I, I wonder when you think about all of these capabilities of design, you know, to, to be a Trojan horse for conversations like this, to enrich our lives you know, to give us people to look up to and and also sometimes to be a real pain in the ass. This is actually, I think, my moment to pitch that I would really love to talk to you about redesigning email because I think (laughs) there is no uglier interface. There is nothing that makes me more stressed out. I, if email was a thing you were required to participate in, like, say, paying your taxes, I would be in jail. I can't mm-hmm. do it. So I'm I'm just going to go ahead and say for anyone else who thinks inboxes are hideous, um, maybe we can discuss uh, something. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think it is the bane of my existence. The bane of my existence. I think it's time. You know, when we talk about these moments of cultural evolution, I think we deserve an upgrade to email. I agree. Um, and I, I, I guess I offer that as my example because – it genuinely makes my skin crawl. And because you are the expert in this arena, and I, I think about the fact that design is always changing and evolving, and that may be what I would like to evolve, but I wonder yes. I wonder where you actually think on the larger scale of, of design and the way it's constantly reshaping itself. Where, where, where do you think it's heading? Is there something that you see coming in the next five years or 10 that you're really excited about? Well, I think everything is cyclical. Hmm. And, you know, 160 years ago, the first registered trademark um, was Bass Ale, of all things. I think super interesting to, to really ponder what that means about our humanity. That The first trademarked registration mark was an alcoholic beverage. Yeah. But, it, you know, you think back to that time, people were very willing to pay a premium for something in a box mm. or a wrapper 
or a can. Mm. And the mass manufacturing of products at that time signified that they were safe, which is something we really take for granted now. Mm. They were consistent, another thing we take for granted, and that they wouldn't kill you. Mm. It really wasn't until the Food and Drug Administration made it illegal to for any manufacturer to make something that harmed someone. You know, we didn't have, you know, humans, consumers didn't really have rights to safety before oh. that. But at the time, people were willing to pay a premium for these manufactured, mass-produced goods because they were a novelty. Mm. 160 years later, we're willing to pay a premium for the opposite, you know, for the things that are grown and we measure the distance from farm to table. Mm. And we're, we're willing to pay a premium for that. So I think there's sort of an interesting cycle that's occurring now with smaller, bespoke, customized, fresher, cleaner brands. I also think mm. that... People are entirely over the idea of having a different flavor or a different form of a brand. They're mm-hmm. much more interested in how that brand is going to make a difference in their lives. Yes. And then more than anything, I think that a good number of people are holding corporations to accountable for their beliefs and their mm-hmm. politics. And that's also a brand new thing. I think... People are finally understanding that their consensus, you know, getting back to that word, about the beliefs that they have, the consumers that believe certain things, that if the companies that they're buying products from don't believe in those things, then they're not going to buy them. I thought it was incredibly, incredibly important to to Wall Street that... Nike's share price actually went up after they signed Colin Kaepernick to their roster, whereas, you know, initially the the trolls out there were burning their sneakers. And, you know, I was kind of like, you know, you're just cutting off your nose to spite your face, right? You're destroying your own sneakers. You're mm-hmm. not doing any harm to anybody else but yourself. Nobody but cares. <laughs> whatever. Yeah. And and everybody was very worried that this this relationship might tarnish the brand. Well, in fact, it was the opposite. Mm. And and the share Nike shares they were rewarded by that relationship. Yeah. And now I think that even beyond that, the power that people have via the use of technology. Black Lives Matter, Me Too. They're they're brands in a lot of ways. They they have all the tenets of branding, and yet they are not selling anything other than a shared belief in the way the world should operate. Mm -hmm. And so branding, the discipline of branding, the discipline of design in many ways has become democratized. Mm -hmm. And the more people realize that, the more power we'll have to redesign the world in the way we want to make it. And that's very exciting to me. Mm, That's beautiful. The fact that a brand's beliefs, a a company's politics matter to us as consumers is on the one hand, perhaps overdue. And on the other hand, feels like a real, you know, horizon event in culture. Yes. At, At that sort of precipice, are there common you know, symbols or graphics or messages in our culture that you actually hope will change or or perhaps disappear as we as we take this next leap? 
Well, I think income equality is super important. I think that the same job should be the same pay regardless of a person's gender. Mm -hmm. I think that any company that's using the word authentic should probably rethink that word. Mm -hmm. I think anybody, because as soon as you have to label it, it becomes inauthentic. Right. Actions can be authentic, but statements generally aren't Mm -hmm. unless they're provable. And intentions might be sincere, but until they're held accountable to those intentions and and those goals, then you can't really convince people with hope and a dream. You have to show people that you are willing to make the risks and the sacrifices necessary in order to bring about change. Mm. Because not everybody's going to be happy with a political belief, and it's highly, highly risky to do that. You can't opinion poll, I have a dream. You just can't. (sighs) And and companies try to. Mm -hmm. But I think that... Whenever a company is thinking about doing something, just by the sheer virtue of being a corporation, they have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders. Mm -hmm. So in as much as there's this framework that has to be maintained, it's very hard for corporations to do something that is risky or experimental that could potentially harm the shareholders. So I think that that whole way in which, especially now with the way that with the Trump mandate that allowed corporations to donate to politicians <sighs> with with no limits, you know, then you really do begin to see that the capitalist system is indeed rigged. You know, mm-hmm. that wasn't the intention. You know, the intention of capitalism was the best possible product at the best possible price for the consumer. That's not the case anymore. Right. Now it's how much money can we donate to this political campaign to make sure that our infrastructure can can be done without any barriers or obstacles. That's mm. not that's not capitalism. So I think that whenever a company is trying to think about what it is that they need to do, they have to take into account what impact they're going to have on the planet and their audience as well as the shareholders and that's something that it's going to take a long time for that to happen. Yeah, That I'm not as optimistic about, which is why I think people just have to keep pushing for their perspective to be heard and met. Mm -hmm. And it makes it incredibly meaningful and I think teaches us why it's so important to always show up for our elections, local, you know, state, national, because the only way we change a system like that is by voting in people who are trying to prioritize the rights of the people over the rights of corporations. Yes. You know, yes, it's, absolutely. It's what got us after 2016, you know, I am a voter. We <laughs> we launched this little design project yeah. as a a plan for the midterms. We just wanted to adv- activate um, more voters and get more people registered for the midterms to to help push back the, you know, tide of un encumbered, you know, billionaire greed that Trump unleashed. And and it became a movement that, you know, will we'll never stop. It, it went well past yeah. 2018 and into 2020. But I mean, this, we got just out of girlfriends of mine, some of the best branding minds. And these group of women sat around and said, if we can all sell, you know, $80 million worth of mascara for a company that hired us, why can't we... Why can't we apply the same ideas to voting? Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And and kudos to you because it is super successful and shows that these things do count and do matter. Mm-hmm. You know, the one thing I can say to that is just that there's, for every, you know, every person has a vote. Every person can make a difference. One of the biggest obstacles to systemic change is people believing that they have an impact as an individual. And, you know, people all say that they are in support of recycling and they want to save the planet. But when it comes to, for example, something as silly and commodified as buying toilet paper, you know, they don't want to buy recycled paper or unbleached paper because of the way that we're socialized. If everybody just made that one minor change, it would save so much waste Mm. and it would make a huge difference. Um, So in that case, corporations are not making, are not keeping products on the shelves for altruistic reasons. Mm -mm. They're only keeping products on the shelves that people buy. There's no corporation in the history of corporations that's like, this, we have real heart for this. We're just going to keep it there because we love it. And I (laughs) joke that someone out there likes peach-flavored diet powdered iced tea because it's still on the market. Mm -hmm. People are still buying it. And so we, the way in which one vote matters is the same way that one purchase matters. And if we, if, you know, people think, oh, what difference does it make if I buy the the bleached white toilet paper? It does because every purchase makes a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So... We have civic engagement to work on. Toilet paper needs a new campaign. And we have to redesign email. <laughs> Debbie, we have things to do. This is a productive call. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I love it. I, I'm curious, you know, because you just birthed this new book into the world. You know, I, I imagine this took a lot of work. And I know you're always thinking about things and projects and, and, and that you can't help but see potential in everything you look at in the world. So I I wonder, rest might be the answer, which would be well-deserved after publishing a book of this size, but I have a hunch there's other ideas too. I I wonder what feels like uh, your current or perhaps your next work in progress in your life right now. Oh, I love that question. Um, Well, Sophia, this is a fun answer. One of the things that I didn't do so much when I was working full-time as a corporate executive was traveling. Mm. And I did so much business travel that the idea of being on a vacation and going to yet another airport Mm. and going through another security line just was something I could not bear. And then when I began to change the way I lived, I started to feel like maybe I wanted to try to see as much of the planet as possible before I died. And so in 2018, I went on a National Geographic expedition around the world, which was an amazing, amazing thing. And so Roxanne and I are, we both love traveling. And so we're going, we've decided (laughs) to go to Antarctica in December and we're going to go see the total solar eclipse of the sun um Antarctica in December. So our work in progress is trying to see as much of the planet as possible together. I am so excited for you. <laughs> I am so excited for you. And this is wild. One of my best friends went 
on an expedition trip to Antarctica three years ago. I have to connect the two of you. Yes, yes. She's her. Uh, her trip was so incredible. I've I've gone over her photos with a fine tooth comb. I'm dying to go. I can't wait to hear how you're. Oh, this is yeah. amazing. I'm so it excited. Is. We're so excited. I mean, wow. I I decided I wanted to do this years ago for my 60th birthday, and now that I'm getting to do it with Roxanne, oh. it's very much a, a work in progress. <laughs> oh. I can't wait. I can't wait to see. This is where I think the internet is great because I think I can't wait to see when you guys start sharing photos to Instagram of this trip. I'm so, oh my God, this is amazing. Yeah, I'm super excited. I'm really, I mean, I'm nervous. I'm really nervous. I was nervous, really nervous before the expedition when I, when I went in 2018, it was 2018 into 2019 yeah. and uh, went to 11 countries. It was the hardest thing I ever did. Oh. And I cried a lot, but I also grew a lot and learned <laughs> a lot. And I have a feeling it's going to be very similar. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited for you. Thank you. Congrats. Wow. That's a good one. I'm I'm going to put, I'm, I'm recommitting to that being on my list also. How fun. We'll definitely report back. Thank you. Definitely. I would love definitely. it. I would love it. Definitely. I would love it. 